0: Welcome to the Pacific Spine and Pain Society podcast for residents, fellows, and new attendings. A casual conversation, like the ones had after a presentation, in the floral Suite, or in the clinic, designed to give you insight about interventional spine, pain medicine, neuromodulation, regenerative medicine, and minimally invasive spine
1: techniques. And now, here's your host, Dr. Daniel Orlovich. Welcome to the PSPS podcast. I have a terrific guest for everyone out there today, Dr. Naidu. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Thanks, Dan. My name is Ramo. I am an anesthesiologist and pain physician working in the San Francisco Bay Area. I specifically am in Marin County, which is just north of San Francisco across the Golden Gate Bridge. I am part of a multi specialty practice with 13 orthopedic surgeons two physiatrists and myself, the anesthesiologist pain physician, and I really specialize in neuromodulation and advanced interventional pain procedures, in addition to doing more of the bread and butter epidural steroid injections, radiofrequency ablation procedures.
1: Nice. You're up in the Bay Area, lovely area. And you mentioned a key word. You said you did interventional pain management. I'll start off with a really big question. There's a lot of changes in the field of medicine. There's a lot of changes in the way that healthcare is reimbursed, a lot of changes in the way that people engage with physicians and other providers. So why does interventional pain management matter nowadays?
0: That's a great question, Dan. When I was going into The fields of medicine, you know, thinking about it in high school and undergraduate work and even in medical school, I wasn't thinking at that time, I'm going to become an interventional pain physician. I had no idea what that was, of course, at that time. One of the things I realized, though, in my journey, which has been quite a journey, I would say, thinking about things like infectious disease and radiology and trauma surgery to eventually finding a career in anesthesiology, is that there's so many opportunities with everything that we can do. And really, what I did was follow the things I love. And I, I learned very early on that I really like to be hands-on. I like to be progressive and cutting edge. I like to feel like I'm doing things that not everyone can do. So that's what led me into to pain medicine initially. And I realized pain medicine by itself is just a, a huge field by itself. There were so many different aspects to it, so many different people from surgery to medicine to neurology to psychiatry to radiology that you really have to figure out your way forward. And coming from that anesthesia background, being procedural, learning things from my colleague surgeons, whether in neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery, even general surgery or plastic surgery, I realized the future was quite bright for this very unique field. And it's a delicate field. It's a field that is constantly evolving. It's at risk for destruction, for criticism, for contempt because of Some of the things we've done in the past, and there's no question about that, but there is a bright light going forward in a lot of the innovation and investment that's in this field. I knew that when I started thinking about interventional pain in 2010 as a resident at the University of Washington, that if it stayed as it was, there really wasn't a bright future. And at that time, it was really dependent on epidural steroid injections, medial branch radiofrequency ablations trigger point injections and then the advanced therapies were intrathecal pump delivery and spinal cord stimulation but there was a ton of scrutiny of those advanced procedures one of the things i noticed though was that things were changing rapidly from one year to the next there was miniaturization in the the battery there were more contacts there were starting to be discussions about new waveforms and i took a bet that if these procedures are going to get rapidly better and you look at some of the other procedures, and really there's been, there hasn't been a whole lot of innovation in the epidural steroid injection or the radiofrequency ablation, other than some new indications, that really advanced neuromodulation is really where the future was going to be. And I took that, that leap at that time, and I'm really proud that I did, because the sort of devices and outcomes we're seeing in the last five years are markedly different than what I saw from say the period 2010 through 2015. And I'm really excited about what the next decade holds that we continue to force ourselves to see better outcomes, to be more cost-effective, to really ensure that we're being safe with the procedures we choose for our patients. So interventional pain management is really that small subset of pain medicine that really does focus on procedures, on interventions like injections and radiofrequency ablation and neuromodulation and minimally invasive spine. And I do think that within this field itself, there is going to be this leaning towards the advanced procedures, because I do truly believe we really need to scrutinize our epidural steroid injections. We really do need to scrutinize even our medial branch radiofrequency ablations. Is it appropriate to be destructive of the medial branches? So that's, that's why this field to me is very special and why I think the future is bright. I think it's important that anyone who wants to pursue it like yourself, Dan, understands sort of that history and understands that we have to protect it and we have to uphold its, its principles in order for it to survive. It's certainly at risk always from other fields of medicine because there may be other types of surgery and spine surgery or orthopedic joint surgery that may obviate the need for some of these procedures. And that certainly exists. I, I think I welcome the competition as long as it results in in better outcomes for our patients.
1: Yeah, very well said, Dr. Naidu. And you said, you know, 2010, that's not too long ago. And you said interventional pain management, just obviously you're a believer in it. I'm a believer in it. There's lots of data, more and more data coming out to support it. For the primary care and other referring physicians or for the patients out there who might conceptualize pain in a non-interventional light, more the medication route or kind of the epidural even, I know that's intervention, but some of the more traditional interventions, what do you recommend to someone who's facing with the referring physicians or obviously treating the patients to get them on board, get them excited, like you said, leaning in to a little bit of a paradigm shift?
0: Every primary care provider may not have access to interventional pain providers that can do all the things that I'm suggesting with the level one evidence. So it is dependent on your community and, and who's around you, but I do think it's really important for primary care providers to understand this growing degree of evidence in in these interventions. If we actually look at the evidence surrounding the medications we use, and namely the number needed to treat tables and the number needed to harm tables that are out there out of the United Kingdom, for a lot of the drugs we use for acute pain or chronic pain or neuropathic pain, you will see that the number needed to harm often is equal to or sometimes smaller than the number needed to treat. And therefore, that suggests a lot of you. Dan, are you okay?
1: Yeah, yeah. Just uh, terrible to think number needed to harm is smaller than number needed to treat.
0: Uh, You're asking why that is or?
1: No, it's a scary thought.
0: Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It is a scary thought. But it's absolutely true. So the number needed to harm, for example, for gabapentin, depending on the tables you look at, is less than what you see for the number needed to treat. And The number needed to treat is based on a successful outcome of a 50% reduction in pain. The harm is really what sort of adverse events or side effects that amount. So that could be peripheral extremity swelling. That could be cognitive impairment. And certainly where I'm practicing here in Marin County, a lot of people come to me and they say, oh, my primary started me on gabapentin, but all it did was make me feel foggy or it helped me about 10 or 20%, but I forgot why I went to the grocery store. And that's really concerning, especially in the geriatric population who is at risk for falls, is already at risk for certain types of dementia. And now you add on a medication that can exacerbate that, we might be actually making their entire condition worse. So I think we need to be more critical of the medications we're quick to draw upon. We certainly know the dangers of opioids. I think every primary care provider is fully aware of that by now in 2021. But where have we shifted? We have shifted towards, as I mentioned, the gabapentinoids, which have their own risks. We have shifted towards nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which increase cardiovascular adverse events, and they do so insidiously. So they could have an individual who's been taking them for years and has no idea that this over-the-counter drug is actually increasing the risk of stroke and heart attack. But that's been well studied out of some of the European cardiology studies that have been put out there with every single NSAID, not just Celebrex or Diclofenac and the more COX-2 inhibitory drugs, but basically any one of them, ibuprofen, naproxen, et cetera. And then muscle relaxants, I recently saw that there's been a huge shift towards muscle relaxants for low back pain management as we've moved away from opioids, and they all have their side effects, including sedation, just depending on the type of drug you choose, And then again, the level of efficacy is really questionable for a lot of these drugs. So as we look at the evidence for a lot of these medical devices, because they're so expensive, the good news about them is they really can't get into our hands unless there is a really good study or an ongoing study. And interestingly, when we look at drugs, we don't seem to have as much scrutiny. And it's one of the reasons why I personally practice very reluctant to prescribe medications long-term. I certainly can understand an acute, severe episode of pain in which we need to do something to help that individual function. But I become very reluctant when I start seeing that use increase beyond three months for a chronic condition. And that's where, where I really want to shift to something else that can ameliorate that condition much more quickly and sustainably.
1: I love it. Sounds like you're you're changing the paradigm. You have evidence behind it as well. The primary care physicians, like you said, shifted from opioids, but there's still gabapentinoids, NSAIDs, and everything. Patients, it sounds like that would be fantastic if they can go ahead and remember why they're at the grocery store. If they're you know geriatric population, however, obviously the elephant in the room is payers. What gets them on board with the leaning towards more of an interventional approach?
0: This is a Very challenging question. And I feel fortunate that I've been able to speak with some of the payers out there about specific procedures. You know, one of the most surprising things, Dan, was finding out that a number of the medical directors and CMOs of carriers were not familiar with some of the novel devices, even though they had been out for two, three, four, and even five years. They're busy, they have to scrutinize every single policy and their EOB. So when a new procedure is presented, it does require basically standing up and speaking about it as a physician or as a researcher. So number one, awareness. Number two is the evidence. And even if you have level one evidence, there's no question bias plays a role. These studies are supported with millions of dollars, and those companies are taking a bet on Putting in that amount of money and hoping that the results will be good enough to ensure that they can meet the FDA pre-market approval submission and then commercialize. And it's during commercialization they really recoup their costs of their investment. But if that study does not turn out well, they lose all of that money. So there's a huge burden on the company to see a successful outcome. And in that, can provide the leaking of bias right let's just be open about it and that's why even after the pre-market approval submission and studies are complete it's important to see post-market approval studies continue to ensure there's reproducibility in the results where the biases may not be as strong those companies are recouping their costs over time and if the results maintain consistency then you truly have a really good therapeutic intervention. And that's what these insurers are looking for. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of time. And there can always be scrutiny about the study design and, as I mentioned, biases. But this is really the way we move forward. And even though the process is slow, Dan, taking years, I feel really good about the direction we're moving in the next few years with some of these novel therapies.
1: You brought up kind of some of the resistance or reluctance from insurance companies to cover these expensive interventions. Talk to us a little bit more, Dr. Naidoo, about the challenges we face as a specialty.
0: Reimbursement is is a big part of our challenge. And what we've seen just from our, our biggest payer, i.e., CMS, over the last several years is basically a reduction in reimbursement over time. It, there certainly have been increases from year to year, but the overall trend, I would say, over the last 10, 15 years has been a reduction in some of the reimbursement for some of our procedures. Now, the good news most recently is we've seen an improvement in our e reimbursement, so a little bit of a perk there. But as we've seen our reimbursement go down and mandates and regulation for electronic medical records, for ensuring we, we log and document certain aspects of our care, i.e. MIPS and MACRA that has led to reductions in efficiency and higher costs related to overhead. It puts a huge squeeze on the independent practice or independent practitioner such that it's leading to more consolidation and conglomeration. And that's a challenge for us in interventional pain because do we fit with that larger model? Maybe that larger model wants us to practice a very specific way. Maybe that's medication management or primarily with rehabilitation and physical therapy. And although those are not wrong ways to manage pain, as I've mentioned, there are some true merits in interventional pain that might be overlooked by some of these larger entities. So I've always said that what I like about the American healthcare system is it's a melange of different types of practices. So Yes, there are some advantages to the large entities, but there are also advantages to independent practices, being able to be progressive, cutting edge, figure out ways to cut costs, to really see great outcomes in their patients that might not always be seen in large entities. So because of this heterogeneity, it's incumbent upon our peers to pick out the right models. Who's doing a really good job? Who's not? And who should we be rewarding in order for those interventional pain practices to survive? So I think that's a really important thing we all need to be speaking up about is if I'm a quote unquote successful practice, how do I get rewarded for that? How do I get incentivized to continue to do good quality work? Or how do I get told to reduce inefficiency or reduce costs? That's the future for our, our specialty. And it also requires collaboration and collegiality among our colleagues. So if there are surgeons who feel threatened by us, it's important for us to work with them. Or even other specialties like interventional radiology, where some of those procedures might be done in their practice. Are we combating or or battling for some of these procedures? I think it's important for all of us to collaborate and really understand the strengths and weaknesses of what each of us can bring to the table.
1: I like that. And also too, I remember during one PSPS webinar, you mentioned like you're saying, can you demonstrate your outcomes. And I remember you, t- you said, and you spoke to it, you always wrote down kind of the patient selection. How did the patient do? What would you do differently? And you have a lot of data to say, here's a good patient selection. Here's a good outcome as well. I think that's very encouraging. And then I imagine you can go ahead and you publish that. You talk to colleagues about that as well. And you increase that kind of cooperation amongst colleagues. So that's really inspiring for me, someone very new in the field to see that this is data-driven. You're sharing it and you're collaborating with others as well. Tell me, Dr. Naidu, a little bit in the crystal ball there. What exactly kind of do you see the future of interventional pain medicine look like?
0: I think the future is bright, Dan. I think that we have a burden on our shoulders to ensure that we maintain the highest level of evidence and quality in what we do One of the fears regarding interventions and and surgeries in general is just the complications, the adverse events, the neurologic deficits, the the deaths, the horrible things that can happen when we become more invasive. But one of the beautiful things I see happening in our field is much more minimally invasive ways of doing things that took a five-day hospitalization just 10 or 20 years ago. So if we can continue to see that investment in innovation of miniaturization, of teaching people how to do procedures, either ultrasound or fluoroscopically guided in a very quick and minimally invasive way, that's going to lead to a shift, a huge shift towards interventional pain. And some of that may draw away from surgeries. And some of that may draw away from the conservative therapies that have been done in the past, like medication management and rehabilitation. We really fit in the middle. And I think we have a really nice niche for those individuals, for those patients, and even for the referring providers who are worried about more invasive surgeries. I think that for you, Dan, you know, I feel privileged to be talking to you because you're the future of this whole discipline. I think that what we need to do for you is give you the tools to succeed, and that is with education, with understanding how to develop a practice that works for you, and have all those tools to prove that you are worth it to patients. And, I, and that's what you were getting at with the data collection and being transparent about outcomes. All of us have to ask ourselves, are we worth it to our patients? Are we good for them? And if you really can't look yourself in the mirror and say to yourself, I help my patients, then you have to ask yourself, what are we doing? It's not to say we don't make mistakes, and it's not to say complications don't happen. That is, unfortunately, a part of medicine. It's it's really challenging. The human body is fraught with variables that sometimes we can't foresee. But we're continuously pursuing perfection in the field, and we're continuously trying to get better and as long as we're moving in that direction i look very optimistically at the future of this field
1: nice love it dr naidu any final words of wisdom any words of encouragement for the psps listeners out there
0: i would say be active in this field i feel fortunate about helping found the pacific spine and pain society because this is a young society that really is built on the energy of young residents fellows and young people out into practice, attendings, et cetera, that want to help shape the future. When I was a fellow, Dan, when I was at your stage, I saw those major societies and I felt like they were too far advanced and there was no way for me to penetrate and become a part of it and to help shape the future of the field. So this society, if you're not already a part of it, I encourage you to be a part of it because you really have an opportunity to have your voice heard And to shape the way things go, even if you're a fellow right now, you can completely shape the way we're going. We have a very democratic style, which I really love. And I really love that the most senior individuals listen to the most junior individuals, and we're all all basically on the same playing field. So I'd encourage you to get involved because, as I mentioned, any field of medicine, and this is something that took me years to really realize, is not dependent on your knowledge of the medical textbook. It really is dependent on how you interact with this large ecosystem of American healthcare, and that is with payers, with other physicians, of course, with your patients, but also data analytics, because all of that is what substantiates who you are in this field. So certainly focus on the medical aspect, the procedural aspects as a resident and a fellow but you will soon learn that business aspects, the relationship aspects are really what is gonna help you succeed in your future.
1: Nice, I love it. Tons of words of wisdom, a lot of insight there. Dr. Ramo Naidu, thank you so much. I know you're extremely busy. I'm sure you have like a ton of patience waiting on you and I know you're very eager. You're always willing to share information and educate fellows as well as other attending. So we really appreciate it and thank you for sharing your insight with us.
0: Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you for listening. We want to continue this engagement. Please visit the PSPS website, join the email newsletter, watch the webinars, or attend the conference.